In the summer of 2022, just months into his invasion of Ukraine and fresh from raising the city of Mariupol to the ground, Vladimir Putin gathered a group of young Russian scientists and entrepreneurs to the opening of an exhibition dedicated to Peter the Great, who was Russia's transformational ruler of the early 18th century. Settling into an armchair, Putin used a televised speech to deliver another of his quasi-historical lectures, comparing himself and Russia's invasion to the conquests of the empire-building Tsar. A few months later, I spoke with Russian historian Vladislav Zubok. I mean, very few people remember what happened to Peter the Great and Catherine the Great. Uh, they just read some books about it. Uh, so when Putin talks to people, to whom he talks mainly, interesting, he talks to those people who reconstruct the battles. He talks to people who dig out uh, graves and find corpses in unmarked uh, graves and fields of Stalingrad. He talks to them. But that's very narrow. You know, I would say if you ask the Russians today, you know, uh, you know do you want to go f- to fight and die to avenge distant relatives uh, that perished during sec- the Second World War? I'm not sure what would be the reaction. You know, the first thing is thinking, yes, of course. It's like all Britons, they commemorate uh, November 1918. Yes. It's the same for Russia. But the second reaction is, hell, you know, the world moved on. Uh, I don't think population is ready for such a level of suffering, not to mention that the Great Patriotic War was a Stalinist construct. He used the human material uh, that he had inherited from pre-revolutionary times, in part, in peasantry also. Um, These things no longer exist. You know, there's propaganda of all this, but people, but I don't think Russia uh, is capable of such stoicism, as such, you know, um, you know, tenacity as during the 30s and the 40s. Uh, so Putin knows it. He's the first person to know it and why his mobilization was so cautious and so late. And um, this uh, brings up the major question how this war can end. I don't think it can end in a resolute uh, Russian victory. The resistance of Ukrainians is strong. Moreover, Ukrainians now believe they can win this war. So uh, we either move to a crumbling of Russia, which I'm skeptical about, or another and very dangerous scenario of the war of attrition and many, many thousands of people dying without any resolution of the conflict. I'm Arthur Snell. This is Doomsday Watch, the Ukraine war. Episode five, Russia humiliated. Russia's military prowess is a recurring fact of history. We've heard about Peter the Great destroying the imperial power of Sweden that had controlled huge areas of the Baltic region at the end of the 17th century. We know that the Russians and their winter defeated Napoleon's Grande Armée. And we know that in World War II, the Red Army was perhaps the crucial factor in the defeat of Nazi Germany. More recently, in 2014, Russian special forces were able to take control of Crimea before anyone realised what was happening. So, with 200,000 Russian troops massing on Ukraine's border, it's perhaps not surprising that experts predicted a Russian walkover. No one more so, perhaps, than Russia's own intelligence services, who thought they'd bought off enough of the Ukrainian elite to be able to march right onto the Kyiv Maidan in their parade uniforms. But soon... Russian forces were retreating from their planned assaults, switching from blitzkrieg to indiscriminate attacks on civilian populations. So what went wrong for Putin's forces? Here's Vladislav Zubok's analysis. 
it's a big European country, and that's the problem. You know, uh, the, what what we found is that the Russian army wasn't capable of sweeping over a large European country populated by Europeans, and you know where nationalism is strong. Uh, where, you know, Ukraine is used to be the most industrialized part of the Soviet Union with one third of the Soviet military industrial complex there. Yes, uh, thanks to the to the West and Ukraine was forced to denuclearize, but its military industrial complex was there. And without Ukraine, the Russian uh, military industrial complex got seriously weakened. So yes, Russia got weaker without Ukraine, no doubt about it. Russian army proved to be weaker without Ukrainians because the Soviet army had the non-commissioned officers and many junior officers, ethnic Ukrainians. Not anymore. Well, they they fight against Russia now. Um, not not to mention the, the huge corruption on all levels that uh, you know really has been eating Russian army from inside and the Russian command as well. So you can go and on and on uh, where you know Russia is no longer the uh, the say the Soviet Union, and everybody sees it. Russia's strategic and logistical failures continued into the invasion itself. In episode two, military expert Dr. Jack Watling talked us through Russia's misjudgment of their invasion plans. Here, he picks up what happened on the ground as Russian airborne divisions failed to take the key target of the airport at Hostomel, just north of Kyiv. The initial Russian invasion plan was to occupy almost all of Ukraine's major political centers within about 72 hours. On the Gormal axis, for example, the Russians had a 12 to 1 force ratio advantage. They, they had succeeded in deceiving the Ukrainians about the intent on Kiev. And what really stopped them was that the Russian obsession with information security had prevented them from briefing their own troops on the invasion plan until far too late, which meant that these troops were not expecting to be shot at. They didn't have maps of Ukraine, so they were driving through towns that had been built since 1986, which is when their maps were from. They didn't know where they were. They were often driving an administrative column without their weapons loaded, you know. Uh, and when they started to be shot at and engaged, they couldn't necessarily bypass because their maps weren't accurate, so they didn't know where to drive. They stopped, they got out, they tried to understand what was going on, and then they would be hit with artillery. Um, and because the Russian troops weren't expecting it, they panicked, lots of them abandoned their equipment, and the whole invasion plan slowed down. And as soon as it slowed down, their task became progressively harder and harder because of the lack of briefing and the fact that their units had, on the one hand, got rid of their cell phones, but on the other hand, didn't have time to set up the encryption on their radios, couldn't actually report back to their headquarters where they were. And so the Russian general's understanding of what was happening in front of them was very limited. The result being that for the first three days, you saw a reinforcing cycle of failure, right? Where the Russians decided to push more and more troops in, even though the road ahead was already clogged, it was already full. Um, and so that's when you started to see a massive traffic jam develop north of Kiev, which could obviously be targeted with artillery, and the Russians suffered very, very heavy casualties. Dr. Mike Martin is a military expert and former soldier. Here he expands on how Russia's war plan tipped into a vicious cycle of failure. Well, I think the Russians are constrained by what they're able to do. Um, so they're constrained in the way that their army is organised. It's quite a top-down army and orders flow from the top to the bottom and initiative is not you know, is frowned upon and is not, which is completely different to how Western armies are organised. And so that means that you could only really do slow podding assaults. You can't sort of send a battalion off in fast vehicles and say, you know, go and wreak havoc over there. It just, it just doesn't work. It's just not the way that, it's not the, it's not the philosophy of the Russian army. So mm -hmm. that's the first thing. They're also constrained in their logistics. So the Russian army relies very heavily on railways for its logistics which is fine in a defensive battle, obviously, because you're retreating on your own railways. But in an offensive battle, it doesn't work so well because you either have to capture railroads or lay your own. And it also railroads are really easy to target because we know exactly where they are. They can't move. And they're not very good at 
what you might call mobile logistics. So again, coming back to that idea, not only do they not have the initiative to send people to do manoeuvre warfare, but they don't have logistical capabilities to supply, you know, a tank squadron at 30 kilometres reach, and then they're going to move the next day and you've got to supply them another 100 kilometres away. Logistics have always been important in warfare, but now with mechanisation and everything relies on petrol and all the rest of it and huge amounts of ammunition are used, you need to have a really robust mobile logistics system. Yeah. And then thirdly, I think there's this factionalization within the Russian forces. So you've got bits of the military, you've got the Wagner PMC, which is private military company mercenaries, which is largely comprised of ex-convicts who've been offered, you know, five or six months, you get freed. Um, and then, you know, Chechen militias and they've got the Donetsk People's Republic militias, which are kind of miscreants from that bit of Ukraine, and so on and so forth. So they, they don't have a kind of unified command structure and these bits of the Russian commander competing with each other. And that stops you being able to coordinate your forces in a kind of orchestrated fashion, which obviously you need if you're fighting a, a large scale war. So it's, I, I don't know whether it's not that they want to do it or they're not learning, because they do certainly seem to be making the same mistakes again and again and again and again. But I think they're just constrained in what they're able to do. And this really speaks to the, the fatal misjudgment they made at the beginning of the war, which was not invading with enough troops. So why did they keep making these mistakes? So the Russian military had conducted a number of operations in the 2010s, which were fairly competently executed. Operations in Syria in particular. But what is important to recognise is that all of these operations were at a relatively small scale. And so what the Russians were able to do was they were able to mobilize parts of their force where they had their best people on it, which meant that, yeah, they performed fairly well. What we saw in the invasion was an attempt to conduct an operation at a radically different scale, but all the processes were used that had previously been, been employed on very small scale operations. And it just doesn't translate. There's other issues as well. The number of people who were planning this in the Russian Ministry of Defense was tiny. Uh, if you talk to people who were involved in the negotiations with the Russians prior to the invasion, they're pretty clear that you know, they'd end up in a meeting with general officers in the Russian Ministry of Defense, and it was evident that only half of them knew what was coming. And I think a lot of those officers made an assumption that, firstly, there isn't going to be resistance, so we don't really need to plan for all of that stuff. Secondly, operational security and achieving surprise is the mechanism by which we succeed, so we don't want to start telling everyone. Thirdly, the military will do as it's told and they'll work it out, and they hadn't really thought through the fact that they were using Eastern Military District troops who, because they were from the Eastern Military District, they're from Siberia, these people hadn't ever anticipated particularly operating in Ukraine, so their stores system didn't contain maps from Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And when they suddenly realized they were going across the border, they thought they were on a training exercise in Belarus. They pulled the old ones out of the store system and they were not up to date. Um, you know, this is the kind of really tactical, detailed planning that takes a lot of people and a lot of staff horsepower. And you can't do it for every unit at a really small level. So, yeah, I mean, I think the Russians massively overestimated their own capabilities. In the very first series of Doomsday Watch, I interviewed the Ukrainian-born writer and academic Peter Pomerantsev, trying to get to the heart of what Putin wants. Back then in 2021, few would have predicted what was to come. But here's what Peter had to say about a history of oppression that haunts modern Russia. There is a very, very strong self-destructive tradition in, in Russia. We can, go, we can think about why that comes from, why that is. You know, this is obviously a great theme of Russian literature. This is not a new thing. And again, I don't think it's something mystical. I think it's deeply, deeply wedded to power and the way power is distributed and arranged. I mean, the simplest explanation is that there was never a point of separation between the exploitative rule of the Tatar Mongols 
and and the kind of tradition of power inside the country. So the first Russian Tsars, or the first Russian princes, are helping the Tatar Mongols suppress the Russian people and rule over them in a tyrannical way and exploit them. So somebody like Kluchevsky, the great Russian 19th century historian, talks about Russia as a system of internal colonization. The elites have this colonialist exploitative attitude towards their own country, which kind of drives it into this kind of cycle of oppression, which becomes then kind of very, very, very diseased. So, so that's where a lot of analysts will say that it comes from. So it's an old thing, in a way. But what's new now is that the reality that you see can, can, can end at any moment. So, so anyone who went through 91 just saw chaos and flux in terms of institutions, careers, identification, um, but also that, that, that kind of crosses over into uh, political warfare, your sense of information, your sense of what the media does. Also, ideology have really taken a second, well, they've kind of become a bit of a joke. Nobody in Russia believes in ideologies anymore. They're exhausted with ideologies. But there is an underlying myth that uh, Russian propaganda says, which is basically that all the world is rotten, that democracy is a sham, that everything is a sham, that all meaning is unstable. Now, that's then exploited to say there's no difference between uh, Russia and the West. You know, we have corruption here, they have corruption there. So you know, that's then exploited, that myth, by the propaganda. But the underlying myth is one that all Russians buy into. And with that comes a conspiratorial worldview, because if nothing that you see is stable and real, that actually gets you to the point where there must be a hidden hand somewhere manipulating it all. So there's, there's beneath the disinformation, which is kind of the surface of the propaganda, there is a deeper myth that really does communicate and bind Putin to his people. But it's, it's a deeply, deeply self-destructive culture. And you can see that from things like the Gulag through to uh, suicide raids, drinking raids. You know, there's this real self-destructive urge. So for all the pragmatic analysis and hard-headed analysis of Putin's aims, what I would really worry about is uh, the self-destructive urge and who else gets pulled down into that self-destruction. Um, certainly Ukraine, but I think many others as well. It's really about life and death. It's not about Russosphere or whatever. It's about can we live, can we flourish, or are we going to be pulled into this self-destructive vortex? This comes to the heart of what is going on in Ukraine. As Russia has taken a dark turn in the past two decades, the temptation is to make this about Putin. As a jumped-up secret policeman with a penchant for assassinations and limitless capacity for resentment and revenge, Putin fits the bill for an evil dictator. Putin's war became a standard journalistic framing to describe the conflict. But Putin is very popular in Russia. And his war is also popular. Dr Jade McGlynn, a researcher at King's College London's Department of War Studies, has recently published Russia's War. Jade has a unique insight into Russia's socio-political culture and the ways in which support for the war goes far beyond Putin's inner circle. I think the media and in general the discussion, which I had hoped would be a bit more nuanced by now, but the general focus is on binaries. Um, so the heroes, you know, the people who are incredibly, ridiculously courageous and protesting and helping Ukrainians often in unmentioned ways within Russia, or the absolute villains. But if we just focus on those two extremes, we're going to miss the broad mass of Russian people who are somewhere in between certainly not actively opposed to the war, but not necessarily supportive of it either. Um, and I've been looking into, I suppose, why these narratives resonate, because we can focus on the propaganda, but in the 21st century state, you can't have a fully closed media space. Russia certainly doesn't. Telegram is uncensored, where 50 million Russians actively use for their news consumption. And people, to an extent, are choosing. They may be being very much pushed um, in that direction, but they're choosing to listen to these narratives. And at some point we have to ask, yes, what are they watching? You know, what is Russia's war? What war are they seeing? But secondly, 
why? Why does it resonate? Why we got to this point where most, where a very significant part, um, in my view, most Russians are acquiescent to the war. They are happy to go along with it. Why is that? This is something that we need to understand if we want informed policy. Yeah. And and this very fundamental question of how they got here, one of the things that I got from the book was this kind of looking glass world. So the way that, the, for example, the Russian media reports in some respects the same things that we see, the, you know, the ghastliness of war, and yet the Russians see this and are told that this is being done by Ukrainians to other Ukrainians. So it, is that something that, that is has been ingrained over sort of decades and, and maybe even longer? Yes and no. So I think there are two elements. One, I would say often they're parallel universes. So there's not just one universe. There's different narratives. There's different groups of people who support the war and they support it to different levels or they just approve of it or they just ignore it. But I think the issue is we often focus purely on platform. Um, so we focus on Putin's control over the media. We know that since Putin came to power, he set about taking over the television stations in particular. We know that they've got Yandex, to, which is like Russian Google, to tweak all of the algorithms so that um, opposition news doesn't feature. But we need to think about the audience as mm. well to a certain extent, because you have if you see the media as salespeople who are selling the product, the war, um, or Putin. So you have that side where I think we shouldn't speak about it as if it's some sort of completely totalitarian regime. Yeah. Um, also, again, then you have to ask, okay, then why are people tuning in? And there's no like one set reason and people tune into different things. But one of the reasons is because it resonates on some level due to sort of socio-cultural reasons, historical reasons. Other reasons are just the psychology of living in an authoritarian state. Um, and and other reasons I think are just um, the basic basic human psychology that I'm afraid probably most of us um, would do. Not not everybody's a hero. Yeah. And it's it's worth sort of reiterating a point that you made there and it's in the book that as you say, this isn't a Soviet state media where a sort of wooden person reads out boring statistics this is actually quite a vibrant um kind of you know uh, competitive media environment again because what that also seems to speak to because this point about audiences is that certainly at, at the beginning of, of of these events last year i found myself thinking well there'll be elderly people who sit in front of a television just as you find in the uk who, mm -hmm. who aren't constantly online and and yes of course they'll they'll get told what to think but surely young people, sort of digital natives, they'll have a completely different response. But it, it appears that that has not happened. I think we have a tendency, everybody has this tendency, but, but we have a tendency in the West to look at our own generational divides or look at our own sort of specific divides and then to imagine that they're exactly like that in another country. Yeah. And there are generational divides in Russia, certainly. And if we look going back through polls sort of um, over the last 10 years, we can see that Russian young people are more liberal on certain things. For example, homosexuality, the economy, sort of civil society. What they're not more liberal on is on Russian foreign policy and the yeah. idea that Russia is a great power and that it needs to um, have a different path from the West. And I think we need to start separating those things because they're not the same thing. Somebody's view on whether or not they you know, think it's okay to be gay. It's, it's not really, I don't understand why we assume that's then a marker of, well, they'll have this foreign policy. I mean, I, th I think what one can sort of identify that perhaps that's also the case. If you look at the hard right and, and sort of nationalist communities mm. in the West, you know, people can hold very, very aggressive nationalistic views and, and still be relatively socially liberal. Well, this is it. Nationalism is really a hell of a drug. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned the sort of the socio-cultural factors what is it that that appears to give russian sort of social cultural structures this sense of threat resentment all these things that negatively then erupt into external aggression well it's basically i guess the way that russia tells its own autobiography i suppose russia as a country needs to make sense of its own sort of historical experiences who are they you know why do they belong together why are they a nation and one of the issues in russia is post-soviet russia is there actually isn't so much that unites russia 
you know, Russia is a very atomized society, a very, um, funnily enough, a very individualistic society, actually. But um, one of the few things that unifies Russia as a country is, um, for example, the memory of the Great Patriotic War and the mm-hmm. idea that, you know, Russia has this almost moral right. You know, Russia saved Europe. And of course, it was the Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union, I mean, like in the West, too, and Russia often used sort of interchangeably, um, you know, saved saved Europe from from fascism. And now look at these ingrates, you know, mm. that's that's re- that's very powerful. And there's been a real effort in particular to spread this through popular culture, which is constantly overlooked by analysts because everybody focuses on the media because it's much easier to quantify just in terms like in a really boring sort of way in terms of methodology is much easier. Yeah. But in popular culture, there's been a real effort to sort of spread this idea of historic Russia. And it's historic Russia is kind of more of a vibe than a thing. That's how I'd describe it. And the idea is that you have this historic Russia that goes through the Soviet Union as well, but not the Bolsheviks, not Lenin. No. Um, and you and it also goes through different periods of, of um, you know, the Tsarist era. And it goes all the way back, you know, into sort of Moscow becoming the sort of inheritor of, of Rus and Ivan III insisting he can take Novgorod because he comes from the Rurik dynasty. So interestingly, once you trace it all back, you can't you get back to to Ukraine as well. Um, which I don't think is a coincidence. And these ideas, this messianism that maybe it takes on different guises. Um, right now, it's the idea that Russia is somehow sort of more authentic um, and has this right to sort of shake up or must shake up um, you, you know, US and Western hegemony in the world so that countries can return to their roots and stop being sort of perverted and distorted by Western influence. In the Soviet Union, it was you know the proletariat um, communism and in the Tsarist era it's you know orthodoxy and there's all there's different it might take different methods but when you strip it all back and really get into what are these stories that um that Russian culture and Russian people are sort of telling themselves it boils down politically to Russia needs a strong state if Russia doesn't have a strong state people from outside are going to come and they're going to destroy it Russia is a great power and it has a mission to help others and then thirdly Russia has its is its own separate civilization. It has a special path, not the Western one. And these three themes, yes, they're core to sort of the telling that we see now of history, but they're also core to pretty much all of Russian history, these yeah. three messages. Um, so again, it's not, and it's the issue with focusing on one guy, however powerful he is, these aren't things that um, you know, Putin came in and just made up and imposed on people. They were there. And he certainly used them, he's manipulated them to different ends, but they were there. There was that appetite. Um, it's just he's fed them, he's fed Russian, the people who wanted this, you know, the most poisonous form of of it. But there was always an appetite for it. Yeah. Um, I, I want to talk about how Ukraine fits into this, because you're I know you're far too good an academic to 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 fall for the is it inevitable? Nothing's inevitable, obviously. But is there something about Ukraine in this in this world which you've just described very eloquently that the Russian world and the Russian worldview is it is Ukraine particularly problematic or could this could this have equally been the war against Kazakhstan and Georgia or something else No 100% not it's there's Ukraine is special because Ukraine lies at the core of all of the stories well most of the important stories that Russia tells itself about how it came to be. Look, there's a quote by Sergei Lavrov. It was when they started bombing um, the civilian infrastructure um, in October um, last year in Ukraine. And he said, Ukraine has um, destroyed itself by rejecting its own history. Ukraine has no history without Russia. And as well as sort of being a general kind of horrible and stupid thing to say, I also found it quite telling because to me, it actually reveals the opposite. It shows that the the history that Russia tells itself, that doesn't function, or the, the memory, the way that Russia is writing its history, that doesn't function if you take Ukraine out. Because how can Russia be this great power, you know, s- defending the Russian world if you can't take any major sort of regional capital or hold any major regional capital? You can't take Kharkiv, it's 40 kilometers. 
it doesn't work, let alone the fact that as well, if you then, if Russia in this particular narrative that they that is that is, is predominating in Russia, if they accept Ukrainianness as a thing, it then starts to put their own identity into question, or certainly this this version of identity that's being pushed. And so, yes, Ukraine is special. What is Putin's direct responsibility for this abject failure? Mark Galliotti has been analysing Russia and Vladimir Putin for more than three decades. I asked him to assess the leader's performance. Up to now, Putin has always you know, talk big but fight small. Chechnya, oh, yes, it was a nasty and, and sort of tougher war than anticipated, but still, Chechnya is a very small little part of the Russian Federation. Georgia, again, you know, five-day war, of course the Russians are going to win. They didn't win as easily as many, indeed, themselves had expected. But the point is, again, this was such a disproportionate David and Goliath fight, in which this time David didn't have a slingstone. Crimea and so forth. Yeah, up to now, these have all been easy wars. This is the first time that Putin had really tied a big war. Now, Russia has, or the Russian military, have an incredibly intellectual, I think it's fair to say, approach to war fighting. They're aware of many of their flaws, which is why they have a lot of procedures, they have a lot of organizations that they set up to ensure that any military operation has necessary resources and this, that, and the other. What's really striking about this war is that none of those procedures were followed. This was not a war as envisaged by the generals. But one way or the other, this was a war as thrown together by Putin and a bunch of fellow spooks with no real military experience, rather than a war that was devised by the generals. And what that meant was they missed the opportunity to kind of win the war with a, with a quick fait accompli. They ended up burning through so many of their best troops in the very early weeks and months of the war so that now they're having to deal, you know, basically rely on mobilized reservists and convicts out of labor camps and everything else. So they, they basically started this war on the back foot and they, they have remained there. Let's think back to our episode two on the invasion. Recall that Russia thought it had bought off the Ukrainian elite, thinking that those in power would flee and Russia's agents would roll out the red carpet for the army. This was a plan hatched in the intelligence community reporting to a former KGB officer and FSB director, even if the intelligence was catastrophically bad. But this is the interesting thing, that in fact, by all accounts, Putin was not the most effective director of the FSB. I mean, this is one of the interesting things. You know, he, he had been in the KGB, and there's always been this sort of myth about, oh, Putin, the intelligence insider. You know, he was a pretty mediocre spy. He was not exactly a fast track heading for the top figure. When he was suddenly parachuted in, again, really as a political appointment, as director of the FSB, the, you know, frankly, still relatively limited, but nonetheless significant uh, insider gossip we've had about how he was as a director was that precisely he was, how can I put this, you know, pretty much out of his depth, that you know he was happy to sign off. He was a very strong advocate for the interests of the FSB, absolutely. But you know he didn't know all the politics. He didn't know all the players. And I think it reflects the degree to which this war is in some ways the product of a particular little generation. If you look at the people who are now around Putin, and you know, Putin's circle has shrunk steadily. And you know, once upon a time, he had some relatively liberal, at least economic liberal, figures around him. But more to the point, people who are willing to challenge his point of view. Increasingly now, it's it shrunk to people who basically all share the same perspective. And if you look at them, they're pretty much all between the ages of 68 and 74. Most of them have an old KGB background. But also, most of them came from what we might think of as Arivist families. They were the first in their generation to actually make it into the Communist Party elite. So this is it. They finally thought they'd made it. 
when suddenly the Soviet Union collapsed around them. And I think it's, this is the generation that really hasn't managed to metabolize the end of empire as just a collection of old spooks fulminating about what should have been, what might have been, what could be again. But I think that seems to very much drive this kind of uh, emotional embitteredness about the war. And now, Ukraine. As Jade told us, the Russian rhetoric used around this invasion, all the talk of denazification, denotes a special fixation reserved for Ukraine. But in other ways, Russia has been doing this in many places over the past two decades. Syria, Georgia, Chechnya, in each case attempting to dehumanise their opponents before acting with a total lack of humanity themselves. This is a dark mirror, a looking-glass world. Petro Berkovsky is director of the Ilya Kirchev Democratic Initiatives Foundation and a historian of Ukraine's relationship with its belligerent neighbour. You know, when uh, you're speaking about Putin, what he's saying today, the mirror metaphor is very informative and uh, it's, it's, it's very precise because that's how I, in Ukrainian language, when I speak about this, I describe. So he is trying to mirror all his own actions, or he's trying to appropriate all the best results, while all uh, the war crimes committed by the uh, Russian army in Ukraine, he uh, just uh, claims that uh, uh, these are the same crimes, uh, the same crimes which were committed by the Ukrainian army. So yes, uh, in order to deceive, to deceive his own people and try to deceive uh, audience in the other countries. Uh, uh, which are neutral or have a favorable view about Russia. And uh, uh, when you touched upon the issue of denazification, it's uh, a little bit more complex uh, because it relates to the Soviet myth of the uh, great victory in the Second World War. And uh, the, myth, the myth of the Great Patriotic War, it consists of the uh, many concepts including the concepts of Nazis uh, and the concept of the ultimate victors of the war. Uh, they uh, revitalized the Soviet myth, but they were saying that uh, it was not the Soviet people who won the war, but it, it was the Russian people who won the war. While in the Soviet myth there was a, uh, a concept of infallibility of Stalin, right now in Putin's world it is based on the concept of infallibility, infallibility of Putin himself that all his decisions are right. It means that uh, since Russians are uh, so good, uh, their enemies could be only Nazis. Uh, I think that uh, right now Putin is speaking about uh, denazification of Ukraine, uh, but believe me that uh, soon he will call that uh, those who support Ukraine, meaning the United States, uh, European countries, that they are also in control of some kind of the Nazi conspiracy. So these countries are also running uh, like a proto-fascists or proto-Nazi uh, regimes. So, uh, and uh, this is, in my opinion, quite a dangerous rhetoric that can result in a quite a dangerous uh, political decisions. What, Russia, what uh, Putin is doing, he's uh, just trying to cover one of his lies by, by the other lies. So uh, it's a great disillusionment. This disillusionment, it came at a huge human price. The mountains of Chechnya, the land the Russian Prime Minister Vladimir Putin calls a bandit enclave. Many Russians are getting angry with Western criticism of Russian human rights abuse, even war crimes against the Chechens. What were we supposed to do, they say, about a place where killing and kidnapping is rife? where no one's really in control, where the only law is a myriad of armed gangs. Russian soldiers have been told they're fighting because the criminality of Chechnya has spilled into neighboring territories and is even destabilizing Moscow. But no one feels the lawlessness more than the Chechens themselves. Russia's superiority complex has cast a shadow over all of the former Soviet countries. So what is it like to live under this shadow? 
In this series, we've already met George, an actor living in Britain, raised in Georgia, who volunteered to go to Ukraine to join the fight for freedom. His motivations are rooted in his youth and particularly the experience of Russia's invasion of Georgia in 2008. As George explains, the carve-up of his country had some of the features of the Ukrainian experience, including the creation of fake countries that aspire to be part of Mother Russia. Being born and then growing up in Georgia, witnessed and experienced uh, about five wars, all raged against us by Russia. So it was a Ukrainian war now was this full-scale invasion. It really hit me because uh, I've seen all that. And also Russia has used exactly the same scenario as it has been using against Georgia, against any other smaller countries. That, you know, they uh, we got to defend uh, Russian population in that country. And it gives us, as I mentioned before, the green light to just invade replace the government with a pro-Russian puppet government and practically enslave them and then make them as gray, as dull and as as miserable uh, as we are. That's the very uh, simple primitive scenario. And then this blunt, naked power just comes in like they did in Chechnya, also many times in Georgia and in many other countries. Yeah. So, of course, the the result of that war in Georgia is that your country has been cut up into, we still have Georgia, the, the country that we all know, but there are now two fake countries that have been carved out from Georgian territory. Correct. For those who are, who are unfamiliar, tell our listeners a little bit about how Russia has, has sliced up Georgia. Of course. Uh, so at the moment, 22% of Georgian territory is still occupied by Russian forces. Russia has declared those two uh, regions as independent republics. And especially one of them, this uh, so-called South Ossetia, can, that country actually, they, they, it's not a country. They, they, so, but anyway, by Russia, with Russian narrative, that uh, independent so-called country was created in 1920s after Russia annexed and invaded Georgia. And the Soviet regime came and they create this uh, so-called republic. Otherwise, uh, in history, there is not a single writing that claims that South Ossetia as an entity ever existed on this planet. And even if you go to, uh, in Georgia, it's Samachablo, region of Samachablo. It's like Cornwall here, for instance. Yeah. And uh, if you go to Samachablo, so-called South Ossetia now, uh, try to find a single historic uh, curving or writing that, uh, that is Ossetian, and we can talk about that, okay, that maybe there was a country or something, but there is not a single, on, on a church, on an old wall, a single historic artifact you won't be able to find. And yet they claim that, you know, the country has been there and everything, and it's an absurd. It's a Russian arrogant lie based on their muscles, and that is all. It has nothing to do with truth, and not because I am from there, objectively speaking, there, there has never been an entity called South Ossetia. It has always been Samachablo. Another region is uh, Abkhazia, same story. But Abkhazian yeah. people have been living there historically, yes. But it has never been an independent republic, never in history. Again, Russian occupation in 2021, and they created this um, uh, so-called republic. It was a ticking bomb, and they used it whenever they needed it. Uh, so when we left Soviet Union, this is when used the, the, the when they used the trigger, and you know, raged this war in Samachablo in Abkhazia yeah. to weaken Georgia and have a leverage. A lot of bombings, a uh, lot of burnings, a lot of a uh, lot of injustice. For instance, let's go like as an easy example. If we had hundred tanks, they would have like a five thousand. So that was the uh, match. But uh, we, we just had no chance in terms of uh, a lot of prolonged war. Then the entire country would become in rubble and really the burned no-go area. And 
But then also the West didn't consider it serious enough. And then they, they got Ukraine, unfortunately. Buildings are burning from the last airstrike and people are warning that the Russian Air Force may soon be back. There's absolutely nothing that the Georgian forces can do to stop these attacks. The Russian Air Force has complete command of the air. And already you can sense that ordinary Georgian people are beginning to feel helpless. As we record this episode, much remains uncertain. But what is clear is that Russia's economy is weathering the storm of Western sanctions targeted at it. At least, for now. And it continues to do the things that it is good at. Disinformation, evading sanctions, throwing hopeless young men from the far provinces into the meat grinder. So what is the future for Russia? A nationalist state failing in a war of aggression, building on a culture of resentment and hatred. These are the signature ingredients of a future crisis. And for the moment at least, sitting at the centre remains Vladimir Putin. As his troops die day by day in the hundreds and thousands, does he sit and ponder his future? What does success look like for him? Now, if I think the Russians could extend their control to the whole of the Donbass region in the Ukrainian southeast, you know, with Donbass plus the Crimean corridor plus Crimea, I think that that would be sufficient in Putin's eyes to count as a win in the circumstances. Because after all, he's now reframing. He says this is not a war against Ukraine. It's a war against NATO with Ukraine as the battlefield and the proxy. It's a way of kind of explaining away to his own population why things haven't gone as planned. Now, I think it's monstrously unlikely that the Russians will be able to take that territory. But if they do, then they will do everything they can, I think, to then try and freeze the conflict. But I think actually he is now pivoting to essentially trying to target the West as the soft underbelly. He's aware that if the West is unwilling or unable to continue to provide that same level of support for Ukraine, then Kiev's situation becomes very, very much worse. So I think his idea is, look, to dig in for the long haul. You know, if one looks at what's going on at home with the militarization of society and the economy, this is not the kind of thing you do for a war you think is going to last for another couple of months. This is the kind of thing you do for a war that you think might well last at least another couple of years. So that's, I think, Putin's strategy. And I, I don't know if it's, I don't actually think it's going to work, but to a degree, it's all he's got. So I think he has to believe in it. The point is, though, again, that very much exactly locks Russia into a very grim status quo. And, you know, although the economy is doing better than expected, and let's be honest, the, the real sort of unsung heroes of the Russian Federation are not these various thuggish soldiers who are being awarded them. It's actually the technocrats who, even while, frankly, being very unhappy with the war, you know, are keeping their heads down and doing their jobs and doing what they can to mitigate the situation. They have proven unexpectedly competent. But nonetheless, you know, the, the pressures build up. And my view is this, look, you know, regimes like this, you know, essentially, I mean, you know, the last pretenses of, of representation have been shed away. This is increasingly becoming a solid old-fashioned authoritarianism, even a totalitarianism. But nonetheless, these kind of regimes can survive for a long time while the people are suffering and everything else, so long as the security forces remain unified and willing to act. And in my perspective, that tends to rely on there not being any major crisis, any major challenge that in some ways forces people to make tough decisions. And I think then Putin's longevity depends, I mean, obviously, in part it depends on his health, but it also depends on at what point does some kind of black swan event force people to make tough decisions? This is the point in the podcast where we're supposed to come up with the solution. But with Russia carrying out a genocidal war in Ukraine, there aren't many quick fixes that don't involve Russian defeat. If there is a crisis in Russian identity, it needs Russia to solve that, not the wider world. Here's Jade McGlynn. To me, I think this is where the Russian media, you know, which does have considerable traction still, I mean, you know, considering the, the difficulties in which they work, um, 
places like Medusa and, and um, especially has a lot of traction, but um, and, and Dodge to, to a lesser extent. Mm. I think this is really where their work comes in um, because it needs to resonate. But again, I think I really think that that is something that's best left to Russians because there's not really the level of Russia expertise, um, you know, that would be needed, to put it mildly, um, in, in the West to in any way do something helpful. And it would be even worse, you know, I mean, who are we to try to reconstruct Russian identity? It's for the Russians to kind of rewrite their story and, uh, you know, I really hope beyond all hope that they do for everybody's sake. We, us getting involved, us being the West, will probably only make it worse. What we can do is help Ukraine to win. And so that's where our emphasis should be. Ukraine's ability to fight and win has been the biggest surprise of this war. Both its resilience and creativity have become a global phenomenon. Yes, it has received extensive support from Western countries. But all of this support would be pointless without a recipient that was prepared to fight for every square meter of their territory. Ukraine's counterattack of September 2022 changed people's perception of this war. So join us for our next episode, Defiance. For many people, this fight is a fight between uh, good and evil. The way how Ukrainians behave, it reveals the best qualities of the human nature. It's about the protecting the, the, the very nature of man. Doomsday Watch is written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced and edited by Robin Leeburn. Group editor is Andrew Harrison and our theme tune is by Paul Hartnell. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production. Doomsday Watch.